Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Kantar, the world's leading marketing data and analytics company, and Side Business School, University of Oxford. In each episode, we speak with marketing leaders and share insights to help brands and business leaders navigate the ever-changing marketing landscape and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a very special Future Proof edition, as I'm delighted to be joined by Rory Sutherland, uh, Vice Chairman at Ogilvy UK and the founder of the Behavioural Science Practice at Ogilvy. Now at Kantar, we work very closely with Rory's team on behavioural science projects, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to invite him to the podcast to discuss some of the opportunities and issues surrounding behavioural science for marketeers and innovation. So welcome, Rory. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Now, I want to, I'm, I'm conscious I only get 20 minutes on these podcasts, so I want to go straight in and ask the first question. I really want to understand, you know, we have a real challenge that sometimes marketers don't always see the need for behavioral science, not all of them, but sometimes there can be a challenge. And I love the Richard Shotton quote, you know, why wouldn't you want to learn from 130 years of experimentation in what makes for successful behavior change? You know, such a brilliant quote. And that's all that behavioural science is, he goes on to say. But, you know, how do you sell the value of behavioural science to convince marketeers and innovators, Rory? Well, the first lesson you have founding a behavioural science practice is a very crucial marketing lesson, which is creating a new market is slow and difficult and takes, in our experience, about 10 years. Okay, And... It's particularly annoying because I think, you know, we've helped create a market which, you know, we'll benefit from ourselves, but I think other people will benefit from our efforts in creating it. I think the whole marketing services industry is stupid, by the way, by which I mean is it's optimised not around what adds value, but what effectively enables marketing services agencies to make money. And historically, okay, you made your money through commission. And therefore, any problem that didn't have a solution that entailed throwing money at media owners was effectively completely unrewarding. And so we became very, it was a bit like koala bears, you know, which only eucalyptus um, leaves. Uh, in the same way, marketing services agencies effectively, uh, you know, became monovores, 
you know, they're very, very good at using creativity to solve Marcom's problems where there was a pre-existing Marcom's budget. But we were completely hopeless at doing anything else. Now, we haven't been paid on commission for 20 years, but the muscle memory is such that we still approach problems that way. And I think it's fundamentally wrong. By the way, uh, you know, Mark Ritson, this isn't just me, this is Mark Ritson, points to several very, very strong brand building activities, including um, the two he cites are uh, auditory or sonic branding and brand partnerships which are grossly underused. They're very, very potent brand building tools, but almost no one does them. And the reason no one does them isn't because they're not important. It's because not many clients have a budget for them. And there's no department that's actually charged with doing it. So it doesn't happen. I've got a friend at a company called Mando Connect called Charlie Hills, who runs this partnerships agency, part of WPP. It's like a Midas touch. You know, you go in and you go, well, we have these two brands here. Now, when you think about it, okay, I'm kind of an amateur biologist. Symbiosis, which is what this is called in biology, which is two people cooperating to mutual benefit. That should be the first approach of a business. It should be, what can we do with other businesses that will advance both our interests? You know, sometimes it's a very big business with a very small business and they you know, the small business benefits from the big business scale and the big business benefits from the kind of cool points of the smaller startup, you know. But there are lots of ways you can play this game. And it doesn't happen because there isn't a budget for it. And sometimes there isn't a budget for it because it isn't very expensive. Okay, well, That doesn't mean it's not valuable. It simply means it's not expensive. And so I'd add a third one as well as auditory. Well, I'd add behavioral science to that list. Okay, there isn't a budget for it. And actually... No one's got a budget for solving a problem they didn't know they had. And a lot of the value of behavioral science is actually diagnostic. It's, di you know, the diagnosis is actually perhaps just as valuable as the treatment. That's, that's one example. Behavioral science, I think, belongs in those categories of ludicrously neglected activities. One I'd actually add, which, you know, behavioral science can contribute to quite a bit, is a thing which P&G calls uh, commercial innovation which is forms of innovation which don't change the product itself, that's R&D, but which change the way the consumer and the product can somehow interact or find new value exchange. So an extreme example of that, which I think is absolutely brilliant, Amazon Prime is a beautiful example of commercial innovation. Um, uh, you know, uh, when Netflix finally came up with three DVDs at any one time, this is before they were a streaming service, three DVDs at any one time, change as often as you like, no late fees ever, $19.95 a month. That was a brilliant example. We have we have a commercial innovation we produced for Dishoom, which is the dice where if you throw a six before, uh, I think it's 6 p.m. Monday to Thursday, that you, you get your meal for free. Now, that's effectively a 16.6% discount, but it's about 10 times more exciting. And this is you know, one of the little lessons I always say in behavioral science. To economists, price is a number, but to consumers, price is a feeling. You know, it's an, emotion, it's an emotionally framed, contextually perceived thing. And by the way, I'd also say in behavioral science, now, I know you're with Kantar, and I'm, by the way, you know, like David Ogilvy, I'm a huge fan of, of market research, but only when it's well interpreted, uh, you know, used for illumina <laughs> illumination, not support. Yeah. I mean, you know, this idea that you, you ask people a question, you respond to the question in literal terms and you solve the problem is just, I mean, this is the whole point. Are you using research for illumination or for self-justification? 
And it's the distinction between what somebody called in politics, uh, there's evidence-based policymaking and there's also policy-based evidence-making. I, I think it, you've really just justified there the use of behavioural science when done correctly and done insightfully is sort of certainly the research side of it is to really understand people in their context and understand the richness of that context. I'll put it very simply. What we're doing is formalising, and actually Amos Tversky, Daniel Kahneman's um, business partner, said something very similar. We're formalising something that has been instinctively known to many practitioners for many, many years. A really good market researcher, a really good copywriter is often without knowing it, a really good behavioral scientist. I mean, the person the person who wrote reassuringly expensive for Stella, you know, he didn't get a Nobel Prize, but he's up there with Kahneman. Okay. That's really good. And I think part of the sort of the reinforcing of this message is sort of making sure we translate it and we make a difference with it. Where have you seen behavioral science really make a big difference. Uh, the Mayor of London's campaign with Mate, mm-hmm. which is interesting, it aroused huge anger, which is largely to do with anger at the Mayor of London rather than anger at the campaign. Um, but the point about that is it comes from a really strong insight into people want to intervene, but they don't know how hypothesis, which is that often uh, if we don't have a name for something, we don't have a norm for something and the behaviour doesn't get adopted. But it's also giving people a new communication power, which is the power to call out bad behaviour in its early stages. Behavioural science insight and work with comedians and so forth and establishes the you know, establishes the phrase as a socially acceptable way to call something out, which people didn't have the vocabulary for doing. Very similar, you know, there's research obviously on people with depression, which is nobody knows how to talk about it. And um, uh, so equipping people with communication tools is, you know, I mean, it's it's anthropology as well. Just for the benefit of those, and now I'm familiar with the, the campaign, can you just say a little bit more about the actual Mayor of London campaign, just for those who aren't potentially so... Sort of of course. familiar with it. So this was a campaign, Say Mate to a Mate, which encouraged the companions of people who were showing the beginnings of engaging in kind of antisocial sexist behaviour, bullying, harassment, to have a mechanism to call out by saying that mate is a very interesting word in that how you pronounce it affects what it means. And there's kind of mate, 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 mate. Okay. And by giving people the tools effectively to elongate the word, this is where English almost becomes like Chinese, you know, in that the intonation, you know, Mandarin Chinese, the intonation determines the meaning. Effectively, we're equipping people with a, uh, what you might call the control rods in social conversation, where they can defuse um, and prevent uh, behaviours. But once people think, Basically, when you give something a name, it's a thing. And as I said, you give it a name, you create a norm. And similar similar things have happened to things like downsizing or empty nesting. You know, downsizing is, I think, a valuable phrase. I, I mean, there's not in the corporate sense of getting rid of people. I mean, in the sense of moving to a smaller yes, house, yes, yes. you know, after you retire. <laughs> Glad and you it, clarified that. And it, it's just, <laughs> and it gives you... Um, um, uh, the, the more extreme version of downsizing was a friend of mine worked at Goldman Sachs, where uh, he received a memo explaining that several of his colleagues had had their roles de-emphasized. Lovely one. But downsizing in that it gives you permission. Yes. Well, you know, we, we were slightly empty nesters at the time, so we thought we'd downsize. 
And it enables you to move to a smaller house and position it as a choice, not a compromise. It's not, we couldn't afford the old place and we're skint and sorry for our loss of financial status. Don't cross us off your Christmas list, please. Okay. But instead it said, you know, we're making this as a conscious, sensible choice at this stage of life. Fascinating, fascinating use of language there, actually, to uh, enable you to sort of nudge things along. Now, one of the challenges with behavioural sciences as it starts to get popular, um, or more, more and more popular, is there can often be sort of some common mistakes start to creep in. But what other common mistakes do you see when brands sort of try to adopt behavioural science thinking and they haven't quite sort of, you know, got it right? And maybe that's part of what people can be can see and observe and struggle with behavioral science because sometimes you do see that generally if i mean if nothing else you know simply by creating space for the conversation there's value okay yes simply by saying logic would tell me that people would do this but behavioral science tells me we ought to consider the opposite or something else it's 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 principal early value is what I call expanding the solution set. First of all, generally, uh, the introduction of behavioral science into any discussion comes as a bit of an epiphany, but it also brings with it just permission to talk about other alternatives to what you might call conventional narrow logic. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And that may be in some cases why there's opposition to behavioral science, because there's a certain sort of very reductionist thinker in business and administration who loves a narrow set of options where you can effectively point to a single right answer. And we would admit that we add ambiguity into the process. We can't always tell you what to do. We can tell you what's worth testing. Or what you, or that the real solution may be the opposite or counterintuitive to the conventional solution. You know, if you're if you have a product that isn't selling very well, well, conventional logic says you drop the price. Behavioral logic suggests you may want to put the price up. Now, by the way, um, one of the things we do as behavioral scientists, I think, is we treat free market consumerism as the Galapagos Islands in that there is huge inspiration there in the workings of different markets. And when I made that point about price, it's worth noting that most fast food, quick service restaurants, McDonald's, KFC, etc., actually operate a barbell pricing strategy. In other words, you don't price in the middle. You have a bargain range and you have a treat range. And that's because the people coming in are in a different, sometimes different people. Okay, but quite often they're the same people, but in a different mindset. If it's Wednesday and it's lunchtime and you just want something hot to eat, you want a bargain. If you're taking your family out, you want a treat. And actually something can be priced too low. If something's priced too high to count as a bargain and too low to count as a treat, it will fail on both scores. So 
well, you know, one of the things we do is we're highly empirical in that we, but we don't, we don't only experiment, we also look for inspiration uh, in the behavior of lots of different markets. Uh, we're also empirical because, as we say, we can expand the solution space, we can widen the question. We can't always provide you with the right answer, but we can t- tell you, actually test this thing because it's less obvious or more important than you think paradoxes and um, strange behaviors. I'll give you an example. The other great value of behavioral science is quite often our clients or we ourselves or our creative colleagues, for example, instinctively believe something, but it sounds a bit weird and we can't really explain it. So I'll give you an example of this, which makes me sound a bit smug, but it's nonetheless true, Uh, which was that about 22 years ago, I suggested to a very large grocery retailer that they should make many of their best offers, the whether it's two for ones, three for twos, you know, 30% off, whatever. They should make them exclusive to their card members. In other words, the members of the loyalty card program. And I genuinely believe that was the right advice. And it took 17 years before anybody tried it. Club card did it. Now Sainsbury's does it with Nectar card pricing. Okay. And at the time I suggested it, all I could say, because I didn't know there was behavioral science then, okay, I could say is you may want to do this. And, you know, I, I fully believed in doing it. Now, the reason for the 15-year delay is that at the time, no one could say actually exclusive offers have a higher perceived value than universal offers. You know, I, mean, I, can, I can demonstrate it to you, okay. If BMW dropped all their prices by 20%, you would have a slightly increased propensity to buy a BMW, okay. But if you had a mate in a BMW dealership who could get you 20% off, okay, not everybody else, just you. So compar- comparative advantage floats our boat rather more than simple what you might call utility. And so those are the kind of insi- insights um I think, you know, or, or maximum, uh, one wonderful experiment which was done by my colleague Sam Tatum in Australia was the best way to sell chips for a dollar, which was a KFC offer in Australia, was to take what was a legal line, maximum four per customer, and make it the headline. Because an offer that's, an offer that's, our heuristic brain tells us that an offer that's basically limited in availability has to be a better offer than one that basically, you know, takes as many bloody chips as you like. Okay. And so those kind of insights, I think, are really, really important. I think I think we can go further, by the way, and I'm going I'm to come up with a book recommendation for your wonderful listeners. Okay. And this is a book called The Experience Machine by a guy called Andy Clark, who's a professor of, um, actually, he's technically a professor of something like informatics and philosophy, okay, at the University of Sussex, who has both revived and built on an earlier theory of human perception, which was first mooted by people like uh, Herman von Helmholtz in the 19th century and by, I think, William James, the philosopher, which is what we perceive is principally a prediction and that we use our senses simply to revise our predictive mode whenever what we predict differs from what we experience. Now, the analogy to understand this is probably um, it's a much more efficient data architecture for the brain to have an expectation value and then use data to revise it. Of course, we do it in conversation all the time, okay? We use shorthand because we know what the other person understands. We don't have to explain everything from deep 
in complete detail, okay? And uh, what that means effectively is that we actually live in a perceptual world where in Andy Clark's phrase, the weather forecast can actually affect the weather. And that what we, have, what we expect affects what we experience. Now, it strikes me that if he's right, and I think there are several good reasons to think he is fundamentally absolutely right, not least the very structure of the brain, which seems to have very weird two-directional patterns going on, okay, uh, then, A, in a sensible world, it would massively elevate the role of marketing and the importance of marketing. Okay, because you simply realize that all these people who are concentrating on changing the objective value of something like the speed of a train or the price of something, what you really need to change is the expectation, not the reality. And so um, uh, it, I, I think this theory actually is highly likely to be plausible, to be to be true. It explains things like, well, brands. Okay, it explains why blind taste tests don't work. Okay, explain why new Coke never took off. Okay. Now, I think, you know, if if I were, you know, if I were given a better budget than I have, I'd kind of, I'd do a bit of a Marshall McLuhan on Andy Clark and basically turn him into a rock star because I think, um, you know, this message, you know, whether you're Kantar, whether you're Ogilvy, um, it has fairly enormous implications, but it also has extraordinary implications for problem solving and the extent to which both psychology and, um, I suppose you call it, um, what would you call it, phenomenology, I suppose, okay, that, that those disciplines are actually essential in problem solving. And at the moment, marketing is treated as like the cherry on the cake or the icing on the cake, if it's lucky, where actually it's part of the cake mix. You know, and the extent to which pe companies do strategy, which isn't strategy, it's planning. This has to be a holistic strategy. Has to be a holistic exercise which embraces everything from your productive cap capacity, access to capital, and what you can get consumers to see, think, or do. I am quite passionate about the fact, and having worked uh, client side for a long time in this area of sustainability, I'm. I'm really passionate about the idea that I don't think, not necessarily us, but as a community, as an industry aren't doing enough to really support the adoption of some of these critical in inventions that are needed to really shift the dial on sort of sustainability. I mentioned early on in the conversation that brand partnerships are hugely undervalued. Okay. What you need here is brand partnerships to solve this problem. I mean, literally Coke plus Pepsi, literally Unilever plus P&G. And you need them to come together for which they deserve credit, and the consumer will give them credit for doing so. So let's take the issue of, for example, um, concentrates in domestic cleaning products, okay? Reduce transportation costs, reduce packaging, reduce all kinds of benefits to both Unilever and P&G, but they know they can't go in alone because, okay, um, if Unilever starts selling comfort in concentrated bottles, it makes sense for P&G to exploit what you might call the visual value illusion. Yes, yes. And, and, and sell Lenore in, you know, vats, you know, in, in oil drums, okay? Right? And obviously the gains to facings and all that kind of thing, okay? Now, if you actually had a collaborative ad between those two players saying, we're going to do it together, okay, that's what you need. So it starts with a partnership, actually.
because it's an I, interesting I, thought. Do, 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 you thought my, do you want my loveliest, the loveliest piece of brand revenge? Okay, which is when <laughs> brands when brands don't cooperate. Okay, so Tesco started doing this thing, which is we accept competitor coupons. So you could go in with your Sainsbury's coupons or your ASDA coupons, and Tesco would honour them. Okay. And Sainsbury's at the time got slightly annoyed with annoyed. Them doing this. Annoyed, annoyed. <laughs> they, they were discombobulated by this. And um, uh, so what they did is they realised there were chunks of the country where there were lots of branches of Tesco but no Sainsbury's. Okay? And they just started door-dropping Sainsbury's coupons saying, you know, buy smoked salmon for 50p. <laughs> Okay, knowing that 10 of these would reach the local Tesco before anybody took them to a Sainsbury. Okay. And within a couple of months of this, Tesco stopped doing it. That was one of the most beautiful bits of brand game theory. And what we've got to learn is, you know, I, lo- I love it when you try and out-compete, but sometimes you've got to cooperate. And um, uh, so, you know, I think... I think these are these areas I mentioned. You know, commercial innovation. I mentioned sonic branding. The you know the rich behavioral science is one of them, which is by the way the gains to doing these things are huge precisely because nobody else is. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So exactly. I always think you know find something you haven't got a budget for, and do you know and uh, go and say what what do our competitors not have a budget for? If they've got an advertising budget, maybe you've got to match it. Bit annoying. Maybe even better still, you could outspend them. That's pretty cool. That's good. But finding something your competitors aren't doing at all because they don't have a department for it and they don't have a budget for it, and doing that thing. So I get very marketing is unbelievably kind of obsessed with like the shiny fashionable thing. It's AI, the metaverse. Okay, I mean I, I keep getting okay. Yeah, everybody basically wants to do what everybody else is talking about, what everyone else is talking about. I really, really sort of take away from this, this idea of doing things differently, that looking for that opportunity that no other, no one else is doing and, and behavioural science and commercial innovation are very much at the heart of that. So, no, thank you, Rory. Thank you for your time. Brilliant it's as a always. Joy. Thank you very much indeed. What a pleasure. You've been listening to Future Proof from Kantar and Side Business School. For all episodes and more information, visit kantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. If you enjoyed this, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode.